Please open up your Bibles to John 21. John 21, and we're going to put our fingers on verse 18. John 21, please turn there. As I said, we're in the last chapter, and we've had the incredible privilege of listening in on our Lord's final recorded words in the book of John to his beloved apostle Peter. And what an incredible gift this conversation is. And I hope the Lord will allow us to see that together today. Last week we, get, we began the conversation and we saw how Jesus is primary. That was the theme last week, that Jesus is first. He's the center. And we all know this, but we dug deep into it and, and we saw that, that he's to be our first and greatest love. And this means that he's, he's primarily affected the most when we sin, but he's primarily affected the most when we love and we please him by our obedience to love the people that he died for as we try to love him. And today we're going to consider how Jesus is to be the primary person in our commitment. That is, that he's the only one to follow. That he's the only one worthy of our ultimate trust and our greatest sacrifice. If I was to try to put this idea into hopefully a pithy sentence, it it would go like this. You and I belong to Jesus completely. So let us follow him unreservedly. You and I belong to Jesus completely. So let us follow him unreservedly. Our country is awash in the water of entitlement and rights and ambition of demanding our rights and demanding our protection. Our country is awash in protest and outrages and counter-protests and counter-outrages and marches over our rights. We demand our religious freedom. We demand our so-called reproductive rights. We demand our right to land, our right to bear arms, our right to equality, our right to our sexual expression of our own choosing. Some of these rights are gifts from God, and others are based on false presuppositions. But my point here is not to debate the rights, but just to see that we are very comfortable as a nation, as a culture, with demanding our rights. And it's not just out there in the culture. It's in here. It's, it's in here. Daily, we battle with our personal and relational demands and rights my right to friends that I want, my right to health and a good family, my right to popularity and being accepted, my right to peace and being able to sleep through the night. (laughs) That's gone. My right to being treated kindly and to be treated justly. Those rights live inside me and they demand respect. And when they're opposed, springs up pain and resentment and offense an injury and a sense of, hey, what about me? That's not right. And into this fray, Jesus crashes in and proclaims something to us and to our world that is so shocking and so countercultural. He says, You have no rights. He says, With regard to me, Jesus, I'm the one who has the rights. 
in my unfathomable love and goodness, I purchased you with my own blood. You belong to me. Lock, stock, and barrel. You are mine. For my glory, I created you. I am your king. You are mine for your good. I love you and can only do good to you. You belong to me completely. So follow me unreservedly. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God. My prayer is that this truth will reveal itself today as we look at this conversation between Jesus and Peter. And it won't just reveal itself. My prayer is that it will clean us today. My prayer is that it won't just clean us. It'll give us joy in believing it as we see how freeing it is from the hell-sourced need to live for our rights and our demands so that we can advance further in the kingdom sorts privilege of living for someone else, living for the one who gave himself for us. So with that in mind, let's begin our text in verse 18, picking up just after Jesus has told Peter, feed my sheep. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This is most certainly John, the writer of this very book. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Let's pray. Lord, reveal yourself today. Clean us today. Give us joy in believing you today. Free us, Lord, from the need to live for ourselves so that we can advance in living for you. I ask this in the name of Jesus, whose blood covers all of our sins, whose blood opens up the throne of grace and mercy. 
where we can never be denied because of our all-sufficient sacrifice, Jesus Christ. In his name I put my hope, and in his name I pray for my beloved church family. Amen. So that's our big truth today. You and I belong to Jesus completely, so let's follow him unreservedly. And under this truth, I have two major themes here I want to draw out. And the first one is this. We belong to Jesus. We must die to ourselves. If we belong to Jesus, we must die to ourselves. And secondly, we belong to Jesus, and he doesn't deserve any competition. So we'll start with the first. We belong to Jesus and must die to ourselves daily. Going back to verse 18 and 19, look there with me. Jesus is telling Peter this. Son, your life feeding my sheep and tending my lambs, your building of my church is going to one day lead you to the same place it led me, a cross. And he says, you will stretch out your hands, someone else will gird you. This phrase, stretch out your hands, is associated with crucifixion. It's, everyone's unanimous about this. Now, now, John also commends that to us, what he says. Now, this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. The stress there about the death is associated with the stretching of the arms. What went through Peter's mind as, as he heard these words? He's just been reconciled to Jesus and reinstituted as an apostle. And the next thing out of Jesus' mind is, and mouth is, and you will be crucified at the end of your life. Now, we, we're used to hearing that, right? We know this story, but, but think about hearing that for the first time. And Jesus comes to you and he says, when you get older, you're going to be horribly tortured and executed. That's, that's how it's going to end for you on this earth. Peter knew undoubtedly what crucifixion was. He, he may have even seen Jesus and the thieves hanging in bloody agony from a fearful corner somewhere near Cal- Calvary. He may have grown up seeing others that the Romans had nailed to crosses and publicly, intentionally left to hang and rock for days. Just like ISIS has done. Just like some slaveholders did. African-Americans in this country putting their heads on spikes to warn the other slaves. You're slaves. Americans did that. So, don't want to go down that road too far this morning, but my point is, Peter saw the horror of execution and he knew what Jesus was talking about. And without missing a beat, Jesus without any tender interruption or attempt to soft the news, he just caps it with, follow me. It seems unlikely that many here in this room will die on a cross like Peter in our present geopolitical situation. But whether it's literal or metaphorical, this morning Jesus says the same thing to us. He says the same thing to us. He says to me and you, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must 
deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When we hear that word, take up his cross, it, the cross is a beautiful thing to us now. We, we, we make jewelry out of it. It, it covers churches. It's, it's a beautiful symbol of peace. But you know that when he said that, no one had that conception. They had a conception of this horrible means of execution. Completely being given over to something that controls you, overcomes you, and kills you. It's as if Jesus is saying, each day you need to pick up an electric chair and pull the lever. If you want to be my disciple, that's what I'm asking of you. Now listen, we are a gospel-centered church. We don't ever pull the lever in our own power, right? But dying to self is a choice that we are called to make by God's provision of grace, to place our lives in his hands every day and say to him, not what I will, but what you will. And I, I could spend a lot of time this morning talking about what it means in various spheres of our lives, what the Bible says about how this commands to work itself out in your workplace, in your marriage, in your diet or your friendships or your entertainment choices, your social media use, your life as a high school student or a single adult. And those are crucial and important things to talk about. We have to do that. That's what care groups are for. That's what other sermons are for. That's what fellowship is for. That's what the Bible is for. That's what prayer is for. It is to daily work those issues out and their practical implications for our everyday lives through his word, through godly counsel. It's crucial to do that. But that's not what I want to do this morning primarily. What I'm trying to do primarily this morning through this text is to bring us back to something just very basic and fundamental that caps all that working out. It's just simply this. To remind us, to remind myself again, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus. And every day, we're called to be real with him about that. We're not called to sleep through that truth. We're not called to, to just use the gospel as a way to just feel comfortable. Yes, we should use the gospel to feel peace and security with God. But we should use the gospel to say, now God, your throne, because of your sacrifice, is completely open to me. Give me the power to lay this sin down. Give me the power to lay this bitterness down. Give me the power to lay this lust down. Follow you into the good place you're taking me. Every day, die. And he has the right, the only one in the universe to command us to do this. And it's an irrevoc irrevocable command. And it's an absolute command. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It's not so much of our time and so much of our attention that God demands. It is not even all our time and all our attention. It is ourselves. Let us make up our mind to it. There will be nothing of our own left over to live on. No ordinary life. I do not mean that each of us will necessarily be called to be a martyr or even an ascetic. That is someone who gives up all their goods and lives in the desert 
That's as may be. For some, nobody knows which. The Christian life will include much leisure. Many occupations we naturally like. But these will be received from God's hands. What cannot be admitted... What must exist, this is great, what must exist only as an undefeated but daily resisted enemy is the idea of something that is our own. Some area in which we are to be out of school, in which God has no claim. For he claims all because he is love and must bless. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There is no bargaining with him. John Stott says it a little simpler this way. In order to follow Christ, we must not only forsake isolated sins, but renounce the very principle of self-will, which lies at the root of every act of sin. To follow Christ is to surrender to him the rights over our own lives. It is to abdicate the throne of our heart and do homage to him as our king. And that's my burden this morning. I think in our church, we are so filled with such well-taught people. You, You guys have been taught so well for years by Chris and Trav and Andrew and other churches you've come from. At least my burden today is I'm not concerned that we're not going to be able to do the math on, on should I fill out my billable hours with ethical, with ethical accord, right? I'm, I'm not concerned that some of us are going to wonder, should, is it okay to look at pornography? I think many of us know how to do the math on, on the sub-levels of how to be good, what it means to be good. But I, I hope I can make this clear. But I'm, tr- I'm trying to ask us to consider the very heart of the whole package. That we just see that those little decisions every day, they spring from this belief that everything belongs to him. That I belong to him. That's what Lewis is trying to say. He's not saying it. It doesn't mean he wants all of our time or all of our attention. There's times where I, I have to work the conveyor belt and I have to... Fill out this form. But it just means that my big picture sense every day is I belong to you, Lord. What do you want to do with me? Now recognize that Jesus says to Peter, follow me. He says, follow me. And this is crucial too. Because Jesus is humble and gentle and trustworthy. And he knows what he's doing with you. And he's not interested in some sort of sadistic oversight and lording it over your life. He wants to do good to you in his leadership over you. Jesus says to Peter, follow me. He doesn't say follow crucifixion. Yes, one day, Jesus says, around 30 years from now, Peter, you will be martyred. But that's a byproduct of 30 years of following me. He says, when you grow old, Peter... And the more Peter gives himself to follow Jesus over those years, the more Peter finds his life and his joy and his peace and freedom and strength in Jesus. He finds as he fights himself to die to himself and give himself to Jesus, he finds strength to be a good follower, a better apostle, a better brother, a good husband to the wife who would journey with Peter. 
And ultimately, he finds the strength that he doesn't have in himself to die on that cross for Jesus. But the power is not in Peter. It comes as he seeks Christ sincerely for the power each day. It comes as he remembers, Jesus has paid for all of my sins, past, present, and future. Therefore, Jesus has no reason to deny me the grace and mercy I need to give up myself to follow him because I can't do it on my own. And as Peter fought that fight, he found this beautiful thing out, that he found out who he really was. He found out what true peace was, what true freedom was. He found out and he tasted what Jesus meant when he said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? He tastes the truth of Jesus' words when he says, I came to give them life. And give it abundantly. So what I, what I want to ask you this morning as we close this first point, move into our final, is are you, are we demanding, demanding anything of Jesus this morning? Are we saying to him, Jesus, I will not be happy unless you give this to me. Jesus, I will not be happy unless you give me my right. Because if that's true, you will not be happy until you repent of that. If you're his child. Are any of us saying this morning, I will not follow you unless you promise me this. If so, there will be little peace in you until you repent of that. Are you perhaps even saying, well, you can have this area of my life. You can have my fathering, how I treat my kids. But you can't have my husbanding. It's too hard. You can have my money for the poor. I'll give money to the poor. I'll give my money to the charity. Lord, I'll do that. But you leave my sexual freedom alone. That's my area. I want to decide what to do that. Are any of us saying, maybe you're a young person and you're saying, Lord, I won't get drunk with my friends, but I can't tell them about you. Don't ask me to do that. If you are doing those things, you are losing And forfeiting your life little by little, piece by piece. And if that is you, I just encourage you, cry out to Jesus. Even right now, even where you sit in this seat right now. Plug your ears up if you need to and just tell him, Lord, you paid for the sin of my self-will. You've paid for the sin of my self-will. Give me the power to give my will back to you. He sits at the Father's right hand for that very reason. Ready to give you the strength you don't have in yourself to die to yourself so that you can live for Him. That is the fight of faith. And it isn't something you only do on a Sunday morning in a moment of crisis. This is something we're blessed to do each and every day. To get up again And not sleep through it. And to say, Lord, I'm not my own. I belong to you. Give me what I need to give myself to you. And you will taste and see more and more. That he is good. He is gentle. He is reasonable.
remember years ago, before I met Jennifer, I was in a long relationship. She was a, a girl I dated in college. And we were on a couple of week break to try to figure out whether to, really, whether to get married or not, really. It was a long relationship. It was very serious. And I just always had this fear that, that Jesus did not want me with this person. And she was a Christian. She was kind. But I, I just had this fear that if I, if, I, if I surrender this to him, he's going to say no. And, and I just fought my fear. I had to have a friend say to me, Brother, what are you doing with the Lord? Don't be a coward about this. Give it to him. He's good. I just had to have somebody get in my face about that. And so I probably fasted and prayed and worked on that. And I, and I, and I felt like I closed with the Lord about it. I did. I said, Lord, this is yours. Go ahead and squash my dreams to be married to this person. Take her away because that's what you do. You just want to kill me. And send me to Nigeria alone. And I'll witness to the ants in a cave. And die there for you. And I'm not making you guys any promises. But I'll tell you what. The more I gave that to him. The more I found out how a gentleman he is. How kind he is. How willing he is to work with knuckleheads. And be patient with them. And I had freedom for the first time probably in that whole relationship. And I felt like the Holy Spirit said to me, Albert, I made relationships. They're good. My heart posture isn't to blow this thing up. And I moved out in faith and I said, Mallory, let's keep going. And she said, no way. (laughs) I don't want you. My prayer time has been very clear. I'm done. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. But I am so glad. I am so glad. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad. My family is so glad. I mean, God bless her, but they were just like, she is not, that is not the woman. You do not need that. You guys are, no. But, you know. Anyway. He's. I have to tell myself this again and again. He is worth dying for in your own desires because his will for you is good and he is kind. He loves you. So I got one more point. Can we handle it? It's 1109. What are you going to say, right? We're out of here. Matthew, just come on up on stage and start playing. Point two. You belong to Jesus and he doesn't deserve any competition. You belong to Jesus, and he doesn't deserve any competition. Oh, I love this. How merciful and good of God to show us Peter's reaction to Jesus' prophecy of his crucifixion. It could have just stopped right there. Peter, you will die when you get older. You're going to be crucified. Follow me anyway. End of John. But it doesn't. Peter, turning around, starting verse 20, saw the disciple whom Jesus had loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at supper and said, Lord, who is this, the one that betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. 
Peter did love Jesus. Peter was going to die for Jesus. But he wasn't so sure that was a fair shake if John didn't have to suffer too. Peter opened his box under the Christmas tree and found martyrdom in the box. What's for Christmas? Oh, I get to be crucified. And he looked at the box. Thank you. Hey, John, what did you get? I got crucifixion. Did you get crucifixion too? Now, to be fair, Peter has just been told he's going to die a horrifying death. And perhaps Jesus should give him some slack for wondering what John's lot was going to be. Isn't it reasonable that he'd want to know? Jesus, what are the other possibilities that might be available for your children? But look at how Jesus' godly jealousy flashes at Peter's worldly jealousy. Look at how Jesus' godly jealousy for his son, Peter, his brother, Peter. I hear Aslan's roar. Scaring Peter back into his arms. What is that to you? You follow me. I bought you. You belong to me. Get your eyes off your brother. Get them on me, son. Why is Jesus so quick with Peter? Why doesn't he comfort him? Peter, I know it's going to be hard. He, he is comforting him with the only comfort he knows how to give him. A loving, stern, fatherly rebuke. Because Peter's envy is a mortal threat to Peter. Peter's envy is a threat to Jesus' rightful place on the throne of Peter's heart. Peter's envy is a road to hell, to idolatry, to self-will. That envy will steal the glory that Jesus deserves and it will kill Peter's soul if it's not fought right away. See, preoccupation, preoccupation about what others get that I don't get, what others have that I don't have, it is a weed that only survives in the soil of hearts that are longing for something more than Jesus. It can only survive in that soil. It shows, it red flags us that we want something more than Jesus. And it shows, it shows up every day. And you're giving Jesus competition that he doesn't deserve. And it's poisonous. One thoughtful person said, sinful comparison is a futile and destructive exercise. It robs us of joy. It destroys our peace. It plunges us into despair and self-pity. It distorts our view of a wise and loving God. And so Jesus, out of love for Peter, stops Peter in his tracks. And says, what is that to you, son? You follow me. Peter, none of your business about John. You concern yourself with me, brother, and not John. 
And the horse and his boy, one of the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, Aslan says this to a preoccupied boy named Shasta. Child, I am telling you your own story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. There's so much freedom in that truth. That rebuke is full of love and mercy and health. What are the other stories that you're concerned about today? Why are their kids so well behaved and mine are in such trouble? Why am I still single? Everybody around me is finding their soulmate. Why have they had so much ease and success in their career and I just can't keep a job for two years? Why is she so popular? Why does she get to be so smart or pretty? And I'm all alone. How come they get to serve church that way and get that promotion at work and Why is their mom still alive and mine's gone? Life is full of trial and brokenness. And yes, God weeps with you in your affliction. And he wants to be poured out to in your heartbreak. He's willing to be asked hard questions. But every one of those statements said in bitter complaint, it includes another silent statement. Jesus, you're not enough. If it rules your heart consistently, you're in danger of saying that to Jesus. You're not enough. I'm in danger of saying that to Jesus. And you don't even have to have a a glance at John over your shoulder to have that spirit of grumbling against the lot that the Lord has assigned you. Maybe you just don't like the conflict you're in. But you're not seeking God's help about it. You're just simply grumbling against life's lot. You're grumbling against the Lord who's allowed you into that conflict to help you and grow you. I just need to pause here. Every day I battle with these things, okay? Not why is she so pretty and I don't get so pretty, but the other stuff. Maybe you're depressed and you're truly depressed. And I have been there. But instead of crying out to him, you simply react in anger. Why do I have to be here? God knows trials are painful, but they're to drive us to him. Not into envy and bitter complaint. And in all these situations, Jesus provides this wonderful, freeing, loving rebuke. What is that to you? You follow me. This is where I have put you. Follow me in it. Follow me here. Psalm 139.16 tells us that every single day was written for you by God before one of them came to be. All the good and the bad, he allows into your life sovereignly. It's a mystery. It is hard. It breaks down the engine of our minds, but it is true. 
Jesus promises that not even a sparrow, not even a, a tiny bird falls to the ground apart from his will. Not Aleppo. Not ISIS. We don't understand. But he's not taking his hand off the wheels. And in that reality, he promises, no good thing will I withhold from you. He has the blazing right to proclaim in all of that horror, no good thing will I withhold from those who fear me. Part of the answer is because he sees a much bigger picture than we do. He's got his eyes on a a little bit bigger slice of time called eternity than the vapor that we are in this earth. So when he says to Peter, what is that? You follow me. He's saying, Peter, I know where I'm taking you. I've... He's not just saying, Peter, get in line. He's saying, follow me. Peter, I'm going somewhere. Follow me because I'm taking you somewhere. Follow me because I've dug out a path for you. And I know what I'm doing. I'm taking you to a good place. Don't look over your shoulder in envy, much less raise a bitter fist. You may not understand why or what I'm doing, but I do. And your job is to follow and trust. My job is to lead. And I'm taking you to a good place. This is ultimately such a freeing relief to us. We have one story to hear. We have one Lord to follow. We have one God to please. And it's not our dreams, our disappointments, or checking on others' lots in life. It doesn't mean that we don't think about those things or struggle with those things. But we are not to be ruled by those things. We don't have to be slaves to what we don't have. If we have a good father who's willing to give us everything that we need to become who he is making us to be. We don't have to be slaves to what we don't have. If we have a good father who is willing to give us everything we need to become who he is making us to be. And that's what he is saying when he says, follow me. It's freedom. And I'll close with this. Where is he taking us? Where is Jesus taking us? Tucked away in verse 19, we see it. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he, that is Peter, would glorify God. This fearful prophecy is a most glorious promise. Listen, listen to this. This fearful prophecy that scared Peter, it is a most glorious promise to Peter. Consider the big picture of Peter's last few weeks. Remember where we started this conversation last week. We went back in time and revisited Peter's denial of Jesus. He told Jesus before his crucifixion that he, that Peter, even if everyone falls away, Jesus, even if everyone leaves you, I would die for you. Rather than deny you. And of course, the exact opposite happened. So behind this fearful prophecy, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you're going to make it. Remember when I told you I would pray for you and because of that your faith would not fail? Peter, your faith is not going to fail. You will indeed become a man who will truly give your all for me and my gospel. I have interceded for you And now I will glorify myself in your death. 
by ensuring that what you could not do in your own power, you will do in my power. You will see me so well, Peter, because of my grace in your life. You will know me so well. You will love me so well. One day you will trust me so well that you'll love me more than your own life. Peter, you are going to die for me, but that is a guarantee, brother, that you will never die. But you're going to be reconciled to me forever. I have saved you with my cross. And through all your mistakes, Peter, I will keep you faithful to not give up on your own. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus says to you. We may or may not be literally martyred, but the one who commands us to lose our lives for his sake and the sake of the gospel will give us the strength to do it. He's able to give you the power to show the world that he saves from hell, that he turns people damned by selfishness and envy into people who become beautiful and lay their lives down for him. And for his people. And I I see that here. I see Deb Thompson. Not railing against God. And the bitterness of, of arthritis. Knee problems that are really, really rough. I saw Bill Keeley. Walk into God's arms with dignity. And I see Jeannie faithful to come back to hear God's word week after week. I see Bob Grove going out in the cold to set up homeless shelters. And I see Christina Gates giving up her years of retirement to solve our problems her counseling ministry with her husband. I see Paul Darris setting up morning, Sunday, after Sunday, building a website with a team of, with, with a knucklehead in it, the and some of us, he may indeed call to the more dramatic way of martyrdom for him. But, but, it, but it's, it, see, it's about him getting the glory for that. It's not simply about us gutting it through. This is my last story, I promise. One day in Africa, this is a true story. I got this from Desiring God. A man named Joseph, a Maasai warrior, was walking along a hot, dirty African road and he met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And then and there he accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. The power of the Holy Spirit began transforming his life and he was filled with such power. He was filled with such joy and strength from God 
that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share the good news to the members of his own local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door telling everyone he met about the cross, suffering, the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. And to his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him, held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole. And there, after days of passing, in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he'd received from people he'd known all his life. He decided he must have said something wrong or left something out about the story of Jesus. And so after rehearsing the message he gave at first, he decided to go back and share the message again He limped into the circle huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was remarkable, but the second was a miracle. Again, Days later, bruised, scarred, determined to go back, he returned to the small village. And this time, they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. And as they flogged him for the third and possibly last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. And before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the women who were beating him beginning to weep. And this time when he awoke, he awoke in his own bed. And the ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. And the entire village came to Christ. That is not Joseph. Folks, that's not the Messiah warrior. That's the Holy Spirit in him, giving him power to do what to us sounds unbelievable. But he is able to do in us far beyond all we ask or imagine. He's able to make Amanda Aguilar for years abandoned by her husband with five children, the most spirit-filled, joyful person that I know consistently at this church. And he will give you the power to strengthen your brothers and sisters as we commit to each other to push ourselves towards Jesus, to remind each other that his grace is sufficient, to pray for each other, to fight with each other, So we can say to each other, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm not able to be Joseph, the Messiah warrior. You're not able to be Joseph, the Messiah warrior, but he is able in us 
to change us and make us strong in him to do the things that we need to do to follow him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.